Bibles to uh, uh, Isaiah 7, but uh, uh, also to 1 Peter 1. Isaiah 7, 1 Peter 1. We're going to read 1 Peter 1 first. And uh, the interesting thing about the book of Isaiah and uh, um, uh, why it, it just seemed to be so fitting in my heart to go there today as, as we celebrate the Lord's table, it's interesting. This book of Isaiah has so much in there regarding both the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And, and we're going to look at how much is in there, how, how, how rich it is uh, uh, with prophetic utterance regarding the first coming of Jesus. But, but it, it, it is so descriptive and so right on that many have called it the fifth gospel. Think about that. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and some have called Isaiah the fifth gospel because centuries before what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the events of his life, his ministry, and his suffering, his death, his resurrection, articulated in such amazing detail that you, you just have no other option but to say, God must be involved in this somehow. This is no coincidence. This is no accident. This is God at work. Do you have those two openings, Isaiah 7 and 1 Peter 1? Let's take a look first at 1 Peter chapter 1. And you'll see why here in a moment. Let's start reading with verse 9. It says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he, that being the spirit of Christ, testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. And I... Uh, a fascinating part of this passage here is the fact that the Holy Spirit testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And what we're going to see is just an amazing picture of the Holy Ghost testifying years in advance, centuries in advance, the events of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and with such amazing detail that I'm telling you today that I believe that you are going to appreciate your redemption more today than you ever have before. Hallelujah. You know what the first thing that Isaiah uh, uh, shows us about the Lord Jesus Christ is his birth right there in chapter 7. I know you, that's one of the places you've opened to or or, or God in your iPad, you can take a look at verse uh, 14 of chapter 7. Prophetic utterance here. 
where he said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know over in Matthew chapter one that that's where this was fulfilled, where uh, God visited this little girl named Mary in the town of Nazareth. And she, being a virgin, was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And there was direction, instruction from heaven given to both her and to her espoused husband, Joseph, that, that the, the baby in their womb was to be named Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, for he would save his people from their sins. And we see the clear uh, prophetic fulfillment of that where it says in Matthew chapter 1, that his name will be Emmanuel, which by interpreting us, hallelujah. Go over to chapter 9 in Isaiah. And we're, we're going to go ahead and take a look at this. This is just amazing because there's so much about the Lord Jesus Christ in here. And we're just going to go ahead and uh, uh, really hit some highlights because there's not enough time to hit it all. Isaiah chapter 9, more along the birth of this wonderful uh, uh, God man, God's salvation that he sent in the, in the form of a baby. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I'll tell you what an amazing thought to think that this baby that was born was no ordinary baby. This baby that was born was called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And of course, I love verse 7 that says that of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. You know, those of you that are used to looking at charts and graphs, you might see it go up, you might see it go down, you might see it go up again, and you might see it go down. But when it comes to a chart or a graph about him, it just looks like this. It just always goes up. Always goes up. Always goes up. Because of the increase of his government and of his shalom, there shall be no end. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. So we see his birth, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, prophesied by this prophet. We also see reference to his uh, genealogy. This is something very important. Look at uh, chapter 11 of Isaiah and verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. And it says this, that there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, something that, that we might miss if we don't know some uh, uh, background here is you might say, who on earth is Jesse and what does that have to do with anything? 
But when you realize that Jesse was the father of one known as King David, then you realize something here. That when there's a, a rod coming from the stem of Jesse and a branch growing out of his roots, that this is talking about someone who would be later identified as the son of David, the one who would sit on David's throne. We just saw a reference to that right over in chapter 9, verse 7, that, that, that this child that would be born, who would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, and everlasting father, that, that he would sit upon the throne of David and would reign over his kingdom. We see also in the book of Isaiah, you can write down this reference, chapter 22, verse 22, that it says of, the, uh, uh, of this, this son of David that he would hold the keys of David. And what do the keys of David do? What does that have to do with anything? Well, it describes what it is in Isaiah 22, 22. It says that the keys of David is when you lock and no one can open and when you uh, open something and nobody can shut it or lock it. Come on. And the scripture says in Revelation 3, 7, the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is addressing the seven churches of Asia Minor. He identifies himself as the one who holds the keys of David. He who shuts and no one can open and he who opens and no one can shut. Glory to God. But what's the significance of this uh, this son of David, what's the significance of Jesus being a descendant of David? Well, I want to tell you this, that uh, uh, over in uh, the, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, 23, and the, the word of God says that this son of David would be a, a shepherd over Israel. Find his requirements of a shepherd. And one of the requirements that God had for a shepherd is that a shepherd would be ones who, who binds up what is broken and strengthens and heals that which is sick. Right there in that very same chapter, Ezekiel 34, God defines what a shepherd is. And he said that the son of David would be a shepherd over his people. So no wonder in the ministry of Jesus, as you look through the gospels and you see people being healed. You, you see uh, in one place in Matthew 12, uh, a blind and mute man uh, both seeing and speaking. And the crowds are in amazement and they, they uttered this statement. Could this be the son of David? Hmm. Isn't it interesting when you understand that the son of David who was to come is understood to be one who would bind up what is broken and strengthen what is sick. Is there any coincidence that blind men on the side of the road would cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Is it any coincidence that a Canaanite woman with a daughter possessed by a devil would also cry out the same, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. So what is the significance of Jesus being the son of David? I want you to know that there is great significance because he's not only the one who would sit on David's throne, but he's also got a set of keys that he's willing to use on you. 
You got some things that need to be opened and you don't see any way of opening it. But he's got keys that can open things. Uh, Hey, come on now. He got some keys that can open some things in your life. And when he opens it, nobody can shut it. And he can use that same set of keys for some things that need to be shut in your life and slam that door. And when he shuts it, no man can open it. Glory be to God. So we see the importance of his genealogy there in the book of Isaiah. Over, I'll just refer to this real quick in the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. We even see the location where Jesus would primarily minister. The geographical location described. Where he talks about by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee, does that sound familiar? And it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. (laughs) And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And we see the the, the fulfillment of this and and a, a, a direct correlation to this passage over in Matthew 4, verse 14 through 16. So we see his birth described. We see his genealogy described. We even see the physical location of his ministry described. And then you see his ministry described. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, come on. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. And I want you to know when we're talking about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not talking about something that's done and over with. You got to realize today, come on, somebody help me. That the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is active today. It continues today. John 14, 12, Jesus uttered the words, He that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these, because I go to the Father. And and, and Luke, as he was writing the book of Acts, after writing the the gospel of Luke first to a, a man named Theophilus, and then he wrote the book of Acts, also addressing that to the same man named Theophilus. And then in Acts 1, 1, Luke refers to the gospel he wrote, not as the end all of itself, but he uses this term. This is what I wrote to you previously was what Jesus began to do and teach. Which means that thing there, that gospel of Luke that I wrote you was only the beginning. Only the beginning of what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. Jesus is still doing and Jesus is still teaching. Now in this other book I'm writing, the book of Acts, and now he's doing it through his body. Come on now. Hallelujah. So that ministry is still going. Isaiah 11. Uh, We read verse 1, but we'll go ahead and read it again just for the context. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, 
nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Talk about the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. It reminds me of Jesus there in that Jordan River being baptized in water by John. And then the father's voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the descending of the spirit of God to abide on him and to remain on him. Peter said it this way over in Acts chapter 10, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Hallelujah. Somebody say, I want some of that. You know, the same Holy Ghost power that Jesus was anointed with, God's intention is for us to be anointed with that same power. Not a different Holy Ghost, not Holy Ghost Junior, the same Holy Ghost, the same power. Do you believe it? Hallelujah. We see here that Jesus is described as one who won't judge by the sight of his eyes and won't decide things by the hearing of his ears. It's interesting. I, I, I see that and I can't help but think about all the times that religious leaders try to set traps for him. Come on. I can't help but think of all the times where, where they, they asked the question and, and, and there was that underlying something under that question where, well, if he says this, then we can get him this way. And if he says this, we can get him this way. But the thing is, is that he never got gotten. He never got gotten. As a matter of fact, it was to the point, not only did he not get trapped, but they got so frustrated that at one point in the scripture, it said no man dared ask him any more questions. Oh, don't you love it? Hallelujah. So we see signs of the, the, uh, the ministry of Jesus here in the book of Isaiah. Go ahead and jump over to chapter 61. Chapter 61 of Isaiah. And we're going to look at a portion where, where Jesus got up in his hometown of Nazareth and took the scroll of the book of Isaiah and read, uh, in particular, two out of the three verses we're about to read here in chapter 61. And said right there boldly before that congregation in the synagogue that day. This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Go to Isaiah 61. Come on now. This is verse 1. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And I want you to know that Jesus is still anointed to do these same things for us. And he has also sent us forth to do the same for others. So if you're poor, there's still good tidings for poor people. You know what good news for poor folks are? You don't have to be poor anymore. 
there's good news for brokenhearted people. He's come to heal brokenhearted people. If you're captive, he'll, he'll proclaim liberty to you. Open prisons for those that are bound. Proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of jubilee. Which, as you study the Jewish tradition, was the year when debts were canceled and slaves were freed. Come on, hallelujah, glory be to God. Jesus is still anointed. Let me read to you Isaiah 35. You're going to reference uh, verse 4 through 6. It says that he will come and save you. Uh, it says that at the end of verse 4. And then it goes on to say, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb or the mute will sing. Oh, come on, somebody. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the healing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. Isaiah 29, 18 and 19, you see uh, uh, similar words. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll. And out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Hallelujah. Also, in uh, chapter 42 of Isaiah 6 and 7. Such a theme here. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. It says this. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. He's talking about Jesus. He's going to give Jesus as a covenant to the people. As a light to the Gentiles. To open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the prison. And those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And I want you to know that the ministry of Jesus is available to you. Just like it was to the people during the time when he was here on earth. It's not a different ministry now. There are those who will try to tell you that. But I cannot be convinced that the ministry of Jesus was one way when he was on earth. And then now it's a totally different thing. That there's all these goodies and blessings that people could get when Jesus was physically here on earth. But now in this time of being under a better covenant, that you're not going to get as much? If I'm not getting as much, at least as much, how can you call it better? Has anybody ever thought about that? If this is a better covenant, that means you're getting the same blessing that they did in the old covenant and then some. Hallelujah. That means you're getting not just the blessing of the spirit and the blessing of the soul, but the blessing of the body too. Health for your physical body is available by the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 49, it talks more about his ministry. It talks about in 49 verse 2 that he, uh, as though Jesus were uttering these words, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And how fitting that is, especially when you see the way Jesus stands before John on the Isle of Patmos in that first chapter of Revelation. And he described him as having a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And over in verse 5 of chapter 49, he says, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, 
to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. And we see this, the aspect that Jesus described of him being sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do those words ring a bell to somebody today? And right down in verse 6, he said, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So we see here that that over in verse 5, he sent to Israel. But in verse 6, it says, Israel's not the only one that gets the benefit of this gift to planet earth. This gift is for everybody, for those Gentiles too. And I couldn't help but think of the angel's announcement in Luke chapter 2 where they said, we bring good tidings of great joy which shall be for all people. Are you with me? So Jesus is for the Jew and Jesus is for the Gentile as well. And then down in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 49 of Isaiah, it says, Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. We just saw that language just a minute ago. Giving Jesus as a covenant to the people. Listen to this. To restore the earth, to cause them to... Those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Once again, a message to the prisoners about going forth. You see, there's been at least three times here where we have seen that theme of prisoners being set free. Come on, someone say, break every chain. Oh, yeah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we see the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to take a look at another Dimension and a very big dimension of what Isaiah covers in his book. The sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at his birth. We looked at his genealogy. We, we looked at the, even the location where he'd be ministering was described. We looked at the description of his ministry and what his ministry was about, what his ministry would provide for people. But now, this is the means by which everything we've got has been purchased and made available to us. This is the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Isaiah chapter 50. Someone say, hmm. Isaiah chapter 50. You know, um, uh, as we were out at a conference a few weeks back, there's a gentleman, his name is Steve Halp, a pastor in uh, Kansas City, and, and he preached a message called Jesus is Everything. And I want you to know, as we're seeing Jesus in the book of Isaiah today and, and celebrating the Lord's table today, is there any other suitable theme to have but to say that Jesus is everything? Jesus is everything you need for your spirit. He's everything you need for your soul, for your mind, for your emotions. He's everything you need for your body. He's everything you need for your financial situation, for your marriage, for your family. Jesus is everything. And there's nothing that, that is a need that is known to humankind that has not been covered by the suffering and the work of redemption that the Lord Jesus came 
to perform. Hallelujah. Isaiah 50, look at verse 5 through verse 7. It says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Now, before we get into the the, the aspect of the the, the suffering here, even prior to that, uh, prior to the suffering, we see that Jesus made a decision to set his face like a flint. To go towards his suffering. To go towards his mission that God gave him to fulfill. Without a second thought about it. Without anything distracting him or sidetracking him from it. But as though he were a man on a mission. He set his face like a rock towards that goal. And it's interesting that you see that very wording in the gospel over in Luke chapter nine, we see that Jesus was passing through a uh, a Samaritan village, and it said that he had steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Come on, you know Jerusalem is where it all happened. Jerusalem where, where is where it all happened, and I tell you what, there, there's coming a time not too long from now, Jerusalem is going to be where it's all happening again. Oh yeah, hallelujah. He left from there, and when he returns, he's returning there. Come on now. And he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And, and, and the Samaritans uh, uh, were, were turned off and did not receive him because, you know, the Samaritans and the, the, the Jews had, had a little feud going on. And we, we saw that as uh, Pastor John did, studied John chapter 4 and, and, and the story of the, the woman at the well. But, but, but we see several references in that little passage, Luke 9, 51 to 53, of Jesus having his face set for his journey to Jerusalem. Some of y'all just need to be like, and you know you got something you need to deal with, and you know you got something that, that God's called you to do that might be a hard thing to do. But you just set your face to do it and say, if God's called me to do this, then I'm going to do this. And you be like Jesus. The Lord God will help me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. See, Jesus could set his face like flint because he knew what the ultimate outcome was going to be. He did not just see the suffering that was before him, but Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says that he saw the joy mm, that was set before him. Hallelujah. Now, let's go back in in this little passage we just read in Isaiah 50. talks about his... uh, He gave his back to those who struck him, his cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. He did not hide his face from shame and spitting. Can I take a little side journey with you and talk about shame for a few minutes? How many of you have ever dealt with shame in any way? You don't have to raise your hand because you might be ashamed to raise your hand. But I'm going to raise mine. There's been some things in my life that I've been ashamed of. There's been some things in my life that have caused me shame. 
But I want you to know that for our shame, his face took some shame. He did not hide his face from shame and spitting. How significant is that? Well, I want you to know, no doubt it's talking about him. As in Luke chapter 18, Jesus said that all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. That he'll be delivered upon the, uh, up to the Gentiles. That he'll be mocked and spitefully treated and spitted upon. So Jesus himself identified himself as the one who the prophet said would be spitted upon. Now, talking about shame, the scripture says, and we alluded to it a minute ago, Hebrews chapter 12, 2, that, that we look unto Jesus, the, the author and the finisher of our, of our faith, and, and uh, uh, that he suffered death on the cross and that he accepted the shame. Or, or in other words, he, he disregarded it. He didn't look at the, the shame that he was experiencing at the moment as something to sidetrack him from the joy that was set before him. Was he, was he experiencing shame? Yeah, he was being put to shame. But why was he being put to shame? Did he have anything to be ashamed of? No, he was our substitute. He was being put to shame because of our shame. Come on. But now we know in the New Testament through the writings of Paul that, that the God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ. And now the provision for God to us is as follows that the face that was a, uh the the uh took shame for us the face that was shamed on our behalf is now no longer a source of shame but a source of glory. And now we who have been in shame can look to the face of him who bore our shame. And instead of our shame, we can have glory instead. Come on, hallelujah. His glorious face was shamed so that our shame could once again be turned into glory. As a matter of fact, let me drop this one on you. Psalm 34 and verse Five says, they looked to him and were enlightened and their faces were not ashamed. I want you to know today, if you've dealt with shame in your life, you can look to the one who bore shame for you, who had shame on his face for you. And now as you look to him, rather than you being down, you can be radiant. Rather than you uh, 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 wearing shame on your face, your face can now radiate with the glory of God and your face does not have to be ashamed anymore. Why? Because he's your glory and the lifter up of your head. Someone get a facelift today. Come on. Somebody get a facelift. He has bore your shame. Hallelujah. Go over to the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. And this is rich. My goodness, this is rich what we're about to get into here. 52, and we're going to go through all the way to the end of chapter 53. 52 of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13. Look at this. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. 
Does that sound familiar? Yeah, Philippians 2, 8 and 9, that he uh, uh, embraced death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. Yeah, we know it's talking about Jesus. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage his face, his form was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And we see reference to that over Romans fifteen twenty one. Those of you that want to kind of keep up with prophecy and fulfillment, we'll give you some of those references along the way. Chapter 53, now verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, it's almost like Isaiah starting this chapter by saying, who's going to believe this? As though he just kind of had a taste and a sense inside as he was writing it that there was coming a time where there was going to be a whole lot of people that did not believe this. A whole lot of his own people that did not believe this. Who has believed our report? We see references to that over in the New Testament twice. John 12, 37 and Romans 10, 16. John 12, 37 and Romans 10, 16. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, now, you know, it's one thing when the hand of God gets involved in something. But this is a project that's so big that God got his whole arm involved. Come on. Hey. Hallelujah. Look at verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. As a matter of fact, even the town Jesus was from. Uh, you see the words in John chapter 1 of uh, uh, Nathaniel when finding out where Jesus was from. He's from Nazareth. What good things coming out of Nazareth? How how many of you have ever read that before? Uh, Even the town Jesus was from was looked at as, you know, the other side of the tracks. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, And and, and so so we we see that that there there was nothing that that was a a real big deal at first when you looked at Jesus that that distinguished him in his appearance from from any other man. He he looked just like a regular guy. He wasn't excessively uh, more hunky than the guy next door, if that's a word. (laughs) Moving right along. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised. And we did not esteem him. First of all the idea of him being despised and rejected by men. Boy we see that in John chapter 1 10 11. Where it says he was in the world and the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. He came to his own. And his own received him not. Despised and rejected by men. And then he's called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I want to give you a little Hebrew lesson today. This word sorrows in the New King James Bible is actually the Hebrew word makab. 
M-A-K-O-B. And, and it covers the, the sense of sorrow, but that's not all. And understanding this, that salvation is a package deal, we need to be very aware of everything that's in the package. All right? So the word macabre means anguish, affliction, grief, pain, and sorrow. A man of sorrows, a man of anguish, affliction, and sorrow. That's the Hebrew word macabre. And acquainted with grief. Grief is another Hebrew word I want you to introduce you to today. It's a word coli, spelled C-H-O-L-I-Y. C-H-O-L-I-Y. And this word it covers the connotation of grief, but also more than that. It covers malady, anxiety, calamity, disease, grief, and sickness. Now, look at verse 4. We're going to see these words again. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has borne our coli. He has borne our maladies, our anxieties, our calamities, our diseases, our griefs, and our sicknesses. And carried our sorrows. Our macabre, our anguish, our affliction, our grief, our pain, and our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isn't it interesting that, that, that the very leaders, according to Matthew 26, conferred together and came to this conclusion that he, this innocent lamb, this perfect man, was worthy and deserving of death. They deemed him as being stricken, smitten by God, and, and afflicted. They deemed him as, as not being who we understand Jesus to be, but they thought of him as a criminal and one deserving of death. But I want you to realize something. I just want to go back for a minute here. This idea of surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. If you don't have a whole lot of confidence in my Hebrew definition, all you got to do is open your Bible to Matthew chapter 8 and take a look at verse 16 and 17 and see how the Holy Spirit through the, the writer of the gospel of Matthew interprets these words of Isaiah. Let me read this to you. This is Matthew 8, 16 and 17. It says, when the evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon possessed. And he cast out the spirits with the word and he healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Can I tell you something? Oh, my goodness, that there is a healer in the house today, and there is healing in the house today. Can I tell somebody that the Lord Jesus Christ has borne our sicknesses, our pains, and our diseases? He carried them on himself as our substitute. Which means that if he did it on our behalf, we don't need to do it because it's already been done for us. 
Someone need to get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Come on. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for your transgressions. It's as simple as this. He did the time, but we were the ones who did the crime. And the chastisement for our peace, our shalom, our wholeness was upon him. Now this chastisement is referring to his scourging. When Jesus was scourged, also you could use the word chastised. And, and, and to talk about the same act. That act of Jesus being scourged was meant to provide shalom for us. Nothing missing and nothing broke. By his wounds, we are healed. Now, Peter talked about that in one of his epistles. Over in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. But he didn't look at it like Isaiah was looking at it. Isaiah was looking at something that hadn't happened yet. Peter's looking back to something that already happened. And so therefore he quoted it a little differently. He said, by whose stripes you were. You were healed. Peter was looking back to something that had already been done. And so therefore, as far as he was concerned, this is done. This is already provided. This is not something that I'm going to the Lord and trying to get. This is something that by God's grace and by the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, I've already got it. Hallelujah. How do you look at your redemption? Are you looking at, oh, I, I need to get this and I need to get that and I need to get this and I need to get that? Or are you looking at your redemption as what you've already got in him? Hallelujah. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. It's interesting. How uh, 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 when, when Jesus was uh, close to being taken away by the soldiers, he made reference, uh, one of the gospels make reference to the verse, uh, smite the shepherd and the sheep get scattered. Isn't that interesting? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Can't help but think about Jesus standing before Herod. And Herod just having fun with Jesus. And Jesus never once before King Herod opened his mouth. 
over in Acts chapter 8. It's interesting to think about this as well. You got that Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot reading a scroll of Isaiah and then somebody gets in the chariot with him. This guy named Philip the Evangelist. Come on. And and, and this man is puzzled by what he's reading. He's reading this very verse that we just read. And he says to Philip, is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? And Philip looked over at that scroll and saw, ooh, Isaiah 53, come on. And he began at that very same spot and preached Jesus to that man, come on. That Jesus was the lamb that was led to the slaughter on our behalf, hallelujah. Verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. It's interesting. If you uh, just write this reference down and check it out later, Daniel 9, 25 and 26. Daniel 9, 25 and 26 talks about this. First of all, Daniel, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is describing the exact time frame of when the Messiah would come and also declares very clearly that the Messiah will be cut off. Uses that term, cut off. And what's the term here? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For whose purpose? For his own purpose? No, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. There's a translation that says, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The stroke was due to us, but we didn't get the stroke. The stroke was due to us. The punishment was due to us. The wrath was intended fallen on us. It fell on him instead. Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. We know he made his grave with the wicked. He died between two thieves. Come on, somebody. And we know he was buried in a rich man's grave. As he was buried in the tomb of the tomb of Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, verse ten. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Wow! It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. There's that word grief again, which, if you remember earlier. Is that Hebrew word koli. There's Bible translations that actually say concerning this. He has made him sick. Your sickness and my sickness was put on Jesus. Are you glad? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief or put him to sickness. When you make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, one thing I want to mention to you, you, you've got both the Lord, being God the Father, and, and God the Son, who is this suffering servant being talked about here. So sometimes you've got to be clear about who he and who his is. You know what I'm saying? 
And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. People have argued that this couldn't be referring to Jesus because Jesus didn't have seed or Jesus didn't have descendants. But I'll tell you, God the Father did. And God the Father is the one who saw his seed. He saw his descendants, the first member of the family being Jesus, who is called in Scripture the firstborn among many brethren, the firstborn from the dead. And then here we are, second, third, fourth born, millionth born, billionth born, members of the same family with our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of God, hallelujah, the descendants of God. And then it goes to say, after that, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. Now, wait a minute. This suffering servant had already died, didn't he? He already made his grave with the wicked. But now it's talking about his days being prolonged. How were his days prolonged? Because you know the message of the gospel that God raised Jesus from the dead. It talks about that moment in verse 11 of chapter 53. Where he, the Lord, the Father, shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. There was that moment in time where God knew the price was paid and God's justice was satisfied. And that's why we can think of the words of the psalmist David also referring to Jesus where he said uh, uh, that, that his soul, Jesus' soul was not left in hell and neither was his body allowed to see corruption because the moment came where I'm not leaving you there anymore. I'm not going to abandon you there in that pit. The price is paid. It's paid in full. And now I am uh, letting you know that my justice is satisfied, that I've seen the labor of your soul and I am now satisfied. The price is paid in full. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, verse 11 goes on to say, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now, this is talking about spoil. Does that ring a bell? Can someone think about Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15? where it talks about what Jesus did in his death, how he spoiled principalities and powers. And he made a show of them openly, and it triumphed over them in his death, burial, and resurrection. Hallelujah. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted like he was. He was treated like he was a transgressor, although he was perfect. He took the penalty of transgressors, though he was perfect. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, As we close today, go to the 55th chapter of Isaiah and also put a 
uh, a finger in Acts 13. Isaiah 55 and Acts 13 as we close today. So we see his birth. We see his genealogy, even the the location of his ministry predicted, uh, the, the, the details of his ministry, what his ministry would be like predicted, his suffering and resurrection predicted. Isaiah 55, 3, we'll read that one first. As we get ready to close here. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of David. Now, when I hear a term in scripture, I want to know if that term is elsewhere. Because if it's elsewhere, I want to go ahead and connect the dots. You know what I mean by connect the dots? Uh, if there's something in the Old Testament that's talking about something and something in the New Testament that's talking about it, I want to put the two together to see what the conclusion should be. So here in Isaiah 55, he says, I am making an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Now I want to go to Acts 13 and see what is being spoken of when he's talking about the sure mercies mercies of David verse 34 of Acts 13 this is Paul preaching and he said and that he raised him from the dead talking about Jesus being raised from the dead and that he raised Jesus from the dead no more to return to corruption he has spoken thus I will give you the sure mercies of David So what's the sure mercies of David about? It is a reference to the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he will die no more. He will never return to corruption. He is, uh, the, the scripture says in Hebrews, talking about sure mercies, Jesus is referred to as the surety of a better covenant. And I want you to realize this. What's this relation to this sure mercies of David? Why is such terminology used? Because Jesus, the scripture says in Hebrews 9, that that when you have a testament, you have who's called the testator. And if the testament is going into effect, then you have to have the death of the testator. We understand last wills and testaments in order for the will to be given to somebody uh, that that person has to die before the will gets passed on. So Jesus, the testator, died so that the testament or the covenant could go into effect. But Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the dead to be the surety of this new and better covenant. He rose from the dead to make sure that you would get everything that was coming to you. Talk about sure mercies. Talk about the sure mercies of David. Talk about Jesus being the surety of this new and better covenant. I want you to know that what we have in Christ is sure. What you have in him is sure. His word is sure. His provisions are sure. 
the scripture says regarding this word that we have a more sure word of prophecy. We're, we're not talking about something that's iffy. We're talking about something that is sure. Like Isaiah 53 said, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He bore our, our, our griefs, our, our, our sicknesses, our pains. He carried it for us. Do you believe it? Are you sure? Well, he wanted you to be sure. That's why he gave you the sure mercies of David. And that's why he raised Jesus from the dead to make sure that not only was the testament passed on to you, not only was the, will, the last will and testament passed on to you, but Jesus is now still working and has developed another aspect of his ministry. He is on the Father's right hand, living forever to make intercession for me and you. How many of you can say, thank God, I see Jesus in the book of Isaiah today. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we honor you. We give you glory and thanks. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God and the things that our eyes have seen today. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would be impacted and never forget, never, never leave this message behind. Never walk away from the straight simplicity of the fact that you have paid in full the price that needed to be paid for our redemption. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.